Welcome to the Rationalist Podcast. I'm your co-host Morgan Wack, and I am with the unassailable Eddie Matthews. Welcome back, folks. Eddie, how many sleepless nights have you had now that you cannot consume blood pudding every morning? Um, nine. Nine. That's pretty pretty high percentage. Yeah. Um. Are you going to start making your it's own? Just, there's just something to that saltiness of blood pudding that can't be replicated with any other uh, food that I eat. I feel like the name really captures it, the essence of it, pretty well. Yeah. I, it's kind of a good microcosm of British food in general, <laughs> if anyone's curious. <laughs> What are we so, talking about today, Eddie? Today we're going to talk about uh, whether Africa and its constituent nations are taking somewhat of a regression towards autocratic regimes uh, instead of dem- democratic ones. And the kind of impetus for talking about the story is the recent election in Benin which uh, kind of erupted into violence, unfortunately. Um, Part of the reason why this kind of caught my attention uh, is because of your area of expertise, which uh, you went to Lund School of Economics to get a master's in. Do you want to just give the quick and dirty about um, your kind of academic career thus far and how it relates to our topic today? Uh, yeah, sure. I mean, uh, I've lived and worked and studied a lot uh, based on sub-Saharan Africa, particularly to do with governance issues and democratization. Um, and it's a, yeah, it's an issue close to home. So I think uh, discussing it here in a short debrief is about, we'll wrap up pretty much everything I've learned over the past uh, half decade. So we should be, should be good. I would expect nothing less. Yeah. What, was the, what was the name of your degree at LSE? Uh, global politics is a master's of science in global politics. And your specialization? Is uh, conflict mainly in, in sub-Saharan Africa and Southeast Asia. Okay. Yeah. And you've lived in Rwanda, South Africa, Uganda? Yeah, and I've done some work in West Africa as well, Sierra Leone, Liberia, Ghana. And this summer, where are you going? Tanzania and Liberia. Okay. Yeah. So you've done some... Is it fair to say you've uh, been to more African nations than the average American? I would say at least a couple more than the average American. Okay, excellent. Um, okay, so yeah, like we said in Benin, the recent election had a 27... So this is all coming from the BBC News uh, article that we'll link in the description, uh, these details. So it has it had a 27% turnout. <laughs> yeah. Um, which obviously is very suboptimal. Um, and just to give some context, uh, where Benin is, it borders Nigeria and Togo. Am I saying that pronounced? Yeah, I think you're nailing it, man. Keep it up. And also Burkina Faso as well. Okay, right. Um, it's French speaking. It was, uh, colonized by the Portuguese and then the French took over in the kind of mid 1800s. Um, it's became a democracy in 1991, and along with Zambia, it was the first African country 
to transition from more of like a military dictatorship into a democracy where the opposition party won the election and the the power was peacefully transferred, uh, which was a huge kind of win for democracy on the continent. Um, and so there's, in terms of like recent history with uh, democracy in Africa, Benin's been like uh, kind of the, one of the shining examples, which makes the recent election and kind of the the um, deaths of protesters disturbing, especially, um, unfortunately. So, um, like I said, mi the military opened fire on uh, protesters opposing the choices of the parties on the ballot because um, the there was only two parties uh, available to kind of vote on the ballot. So that's why you have a 27% turnout. Um, there's a lot of people in Benin that were like this, election is invalid anyway, because both of these parties are um, loyal to the current president. And so why would we go vote uh, for options that don't even have an opposition um, party uh, present? And from my understanding, the reason that there's only two choices of the parties on the ballot was because, you know, five years ago, Apparently, they had 20 parties to choose from, and that ballooned all the way up to 200. So naturally, uh, 200 parties is way too many. And so there was this election reform to try to like whittle it down to a reasonable number. And part of that election reform was um, introduced all these kind of really like rigorous and expensive election regulations that most parties um, couldn't follow. Maybe they filled out some of the government paperwork uh, slightly wrong and they were disqualified. And so, like, basically the only two parties that maneuvered, like, jumped through all these hoops were these two parties that were loyal to the president, which... What a coincidence. You know, naturally... What a coincidence. Yeah, which naturally attracted a lot of suspicion. And so... Um, and, you know, while it became a democracy in 1991... It's had a checkered history as a democracy with um, some corruption allegations, um, some attempts on the one of the uh, previous presidents' live. Um, and so it's not to say that, well, it's not to say it's been a perfect democracy um, in the past, you know, since 1991, which is to be expected in such a young democracy. I think... Um, Something that we often forget is that while America is still a young democracy and still a young country, we've had a solid, you know, couple hundred years, 250 <laughs> years under our belts in terms of getting things wrong and getting things right and dealing with... Don't let anyone um, ever say you can't do quick math, man. I saw that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I know. So, um, so we've had just... We've had some time to really like work out some of the kinks with the uh, uh, checks and balances of our system. Right. And obviously American democracy hasn't been perfect and we've, but I think that we've progressively hopefully gotten better over the 250 years and we've had that much time to kind of work it out. Right. So um, something that people kind of forget about Mexico, for instance, is that it's such still such a young democracy. It's like nearing a hundred years old which is still really young for democracy. So you have a lot of corruption in the, the Mexican system right now, which I don't know is to be expected with 
younger democracies are still just working through. Obviously, you would hope that it's a lot less corruption than Mexico is experiencing. But um, all that to say is that democracy is a really just difficult process to get right. Absolutely. Uh, I think a lot of talk recently in the U.S. system has been about how it is kind of binded together by these norms and these uh, like social understandings and political norms that kind of bind the complexities of democracy. Um, democracy is an incredibly complex and challenging system of government to run, especially when it's in its nascency. Uh, and I think we're seeing a lot of those growing pains in certain areas where they haven't had the time for these structures and these institutions to grow organically. In the United States, for a lot of, of its history, there were rampant corruption, number of scandals, um, lots of different types of uh, political um, issues that we're seeing in other countries now. Um, and this is leading, in part, due to the fact that in more global age, other countries can adapt to the benefits of democracy and kind of uh, dilute the optimism that a lot of people have. And I don't think that in Benin or elsewhere, the largest issue with this kind of apathy that voters have had in Africa and elsewhere has necessarily has to do with the benefits of democracy, but it has to do with an attraction to other systems that they mm -hmm. see as being more efficient or being uh, more capable of addressing social problems. Um, in, in Africa now, there are essentially six countries that are deemed completely free for voters and citizens out of 46 in sub-Saharan Africa. And one of those includes Benin, which after the election will probably fall off that list. Um, and so this is the state of affairs that, that we're dealing with. Um, and even in countries such as South Africa, which recently had an election, the ruling party essentially rules as a single-party state. Um, and that leads wow. to a number of other corruption problems um, that they're dealing with in South Africa under Jacob Zuma. Hopefully under civil Ramaphosa, we'll have uh, a different system. But I really do think that the benefits of democracy have been taken for granted by the West. Um, Certainly. I think that we really haven't done a good job expressing what it is about democracy that is so great. And I think that's because we've become disillusioned with it in the West as well. Um, and I, I think a lot of the problem... So, like I said before, there's about six countries in, in Africa that are completely free. Can you guess how many of the 46 Sub-Saharan African countries hold elections? Um, how many of the 46 hold elections? Yeah. Um, is this a trick question? Do 46 hold elections, but it's they aren't real ones? 44. And the 44, only other right. two is Somaliland, and they would if they just, they just literally can't hold elections there because of, right. <laughs> of warfare. And the other one is Swaziland, which is the only monarchy left on, uh, Eswatini, the only monarchy left in, in Sub-Saharan Africa. Um, right. so you get these sorts of systems where they appear, they've kind of co-opted all the mechanisms of democracies, um, but without any of the payoff for the actual citizens. And I think this makes it hard for anyone, including people that are studying democracy, not just everyday citizens who just want to get on with their lives, to determine what actually is democracy, why it matters that the elections 
the difference in free and fair elections and regular elections, how they can deal with that nuance. And because the West has continued to reward these very minimal shifts towards democracy with aid payments and uh, diplomatic relations and all sorts of other benefits for corrupt leaders, there is an understandable apathy amongst the people in a number of these countries against democratization because for them, why would they fight so hard and risk their lives for something that they've seen, apparently seen and seen as much not only a failure to themselves, but a failure as a system as a whole. Yeah. And I think that, um, something that is understandable, like a quote from the, we'll link another uh, BBC article that talks more broadly about the African continent and, you know, the recent history of, um, electoral democracy there. Um, one of the quotes in that second BBC article was by, you know, understandable, but regrettable, in the idea of like, we just need a benevolent dictator like China. That was what um, one of those sources said. And that is just so disturbing to me because um, China, in terms of human rights catastrophes currently going on in 2019 is, has an atrocious track record. And yet they're so powerful that we have to put up with it, you know? And even China's system has a number of internal checks and balances within the party that keep it from becoming the worst version of itself. Um, right. Not just in China, but they, they point to leaders like Paul Kagame, uh, maybe Museveni within Africa who have been able to lead fairly decent economic and political records as dictators. Um, and this is seen as an alternative form of government that can maybe be appealing to a number of citizens. And the, the fact is that this is an entirely availability bias. Sure, there are, you know, one in every hundred benevolent or dictators becomes a benevolent dictator with the ability to uh, swim between seas of corruption. But ninety nine out of a hundred times, it's going to be worse for the citizens of that country than if they are able to vote, if they're able to represent themselves on a political level. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, benevolent benevolent dictator like you already lost me that's an oxymoron (laughs) yeah that should not be something that should be desired and yet it's understandable why some um you know citizens of some of these african countries that have been disillusioned with democracy uh why they desire that but part of the reason they become disillusioned with democracy it seems is corruption within the democratic system and then you know another um point that they were trying to make in this BBC article was that these places are experiencing the drawbacks of democracy without the gains of it. Mm -hmm. Um, This is what another source says in that article. And I, yeah, that's a really difficult place to be because they make the point that it's not like the way to combat corruption is not a benevolent dictatorship where the government and the private sector are even more integrated, right? Yeah, I mean... Because then bribery and all this stuff, like... Well, I don't know, I guess... Yeah, I don't know. As, as far as, like, how bribery works in that context, I guess it would change a little bit from the traditional context because maybe there's not even an impetus to cover that stuff up if it's, you know, out on its face integrated. But So here's here's one of the things that... Another kind of... Not a, a downside, but a weakness of democracy is 
a central tenet of it in that it protects most of the time free speech and personal freedoms. Um, If you're in an autocracy and you see corruption going on and you report it, you are most likely going to be imprisoned, if not murdered. Right. If you're in a democracy... Because it's supposed to be running well and, you know, it's a criticism of, yeah, the whole system. Exactly. But if you're in a democracy, then you have the right to uh, express this corruption going on. And so it appears to the citizens that there's far more corruption in a democratic open system than there is in an autocracy when this is almost never the case. Right, 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 right. No, that's a really good uh, distinction to make. Um, I thought that you explained to me, I guess it's been a couple years ago now, which I felt like was like a really good kind of summation of, I don't know, at least how I've seen part of your career is that you were talking about like in the West and in America, we would just see elections happening in the Middle East or in Sub-Saharan Africa and be like, awesome, they're doing elections, we're good to go. And it's like, no, 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 that's not the point. The point's a healthy democracy. It's not just whether a country has elections or not. Having elections does not make you a democracy. I mean, dictators aren't idiots, right? Usually very, very smart and able to manipulate not just their own citizens, but the international uh, press corps and international governments as well. I think uh, that's something that we forget. And the fact that we treat these, like the fact that they're holding elections that aren't free and fair as positive should not be the case. If anything, that should be treated as a negative, that they're deliberately faking something so that they can gain the trust of the West or their own people. Um, And we still, yet we still treat it like they're on some sort of ladder that hasn't existed in in decades. There never was this this sort of top-down organized ladder of way of democratizing. Yeah. I mean, I think that's kind of the thing where if they tell us what we want to hear, that's all we kind of want to know anyway. And even if you only have to dig six inches deeper, you'll find out the truth. But I think generally, maybe we don't even want to know. We just kind of want to be able to move on. And I, that's not, I'm not saying this is good by any stretch of imagination. I'm just saying that likely you would just stop the person talking after they're like, we have elections set up. I don't know. I think the hope was for a long time that healthcare provisions were something that we could provide even to dictatorships that would lead to a healthier population and more overthrows into more democratic systems. And that really has not been the case. Um, mm. There's an argument to be made that the provision of healthcare has only bolstered the role of strong men and strong women, but very rarely uh, in a number Cause, of Because is that... It, does that become a bargaining chip where they can now provide health care to people? And it's like, if you overthrow me, if you vote me out of power, you lose your health care. Yeah, I mean, it's not stated that directly, but I think if you are, uh, you know, a, a citizen of a country and you've had a terrible time and then somebody comes in and allows a foreign government to give you vaccinations and to keep your kids from dying, it's hard for you to then go back out and protest and overthrow them when you see it as them having contributed to your livelihood. Yeah. I mean, at the end of the day, people vote and act with their emotions and they protect their family, both of which are, you know, part of our biological human nature. So it's like, why would you go out and protest this vague concept you've heard called democracy 
when it's yeah they're whatever regime is meeting your day-to-day needs at least in the short term mm-hmm. um so yeah i mean i i i get that and also it's hard to what would you say is the literacy of you know the let's say the free countries that we're talking about those seven nations or six nations you just mean like actual literacy the, the literacy well i don't know it's hard to like how there's 90 million people in nigeria would you say uh it might even be more than that i think it really is, yeah i'll look it up really quickly and i think they have you know, a couple major universities. Yeah, it's a hundred and ninety million. Hundred and ninety million. Yeah. It just yeah, it does not seem like the um educational sector has caught up with a lot of the other um I don't know, sectors in terms of the countries that we're talking about to I, I guess what I'm getting at is do we know whether the average citizen, the average voter in these countries has had any kind of um, context for why democracy is important. Yeah, I mean, I, I think know it's, it's kind it's of like difficult a, to even yeah tell people in the in America today why democracy is important. I think you get a startling yeah. number of people who would disagree and say that it probably isn't that important. And that's here where we've had long-standing democracy for centuries. Yeah. Well, I mean, maybe here it's just so normative that it's taken for granted. Again, you know, like. Yeah, I mean, that's the thing. Is the problem is not that there's strong support for an alternative at the moment. It's that this creeping apathy that people aren't voting in elections, even in the free countries in Africa. In South Africa, uh, almost 10% less vote voted this time around um, in this election than the last election. Um, and you're seeing the same trend across Africa. Not only participation in voting, but participation in other public actions, in protests, in, yeah. in any sort of political involvement in society it's all just dipping back to very very low questionable rates and you can't it's completely understandable given the way that the rest of the world has supported dictatorships and done very little to help show why democracy is beneficial to everyone yeah i mean i think that there's kind of a general stigmatization in america about political involvement or, you know, real, I don't know, like grounded, um, I guess just care for the health of a democracy. I feel like it's not, people are kind of like, take a chill pill. Like, it doesn't really that matter who's the president or who's not the president. These things, like, there's such a natural cycle of these things. Whether democracy is healthy, whether it's not. It's like the same old stuff happens. These politicians tell you the same old thing. It's like kind of who cares. And if you care too much about it, you're like that guy. And I don't know. I think that that, that that's not a helpful. Um, I, and, and maybe this is way more prevalent than I'm thinking about. But I don't know. I just feel like the more kind of like politically uh, motivated I've become, the more in I don't know, I guess like alienating it is to at least some of the people I talk to. Yeah, I mean, the checks and balances that are inherent to democracy are not the most attractive form. I mean, having a hero, a dictator that you see is going to save everyone is a lot more attractive than having a system of complex checks and balances that are going to slow things down and ensure that it's the most efficient form of government possible. 
um, it has a lot of downsides in terms of the appeal, especially when you see democracies and democratic structures like elections failing across the continent. Yeah. So what would you say is a path forward for, you know, a nation like Benin? Well, Benin specifically, uh, hopefully... Or or South Africa, or, you know, I guess pick your example for... Yeah, I mean, uh, that's the thing is it's it really dependent on the state, right? There's no blueprint solutions for, for everyone. I think the best the, the West can do is to reprioritize uh, democratization and the freedom of countries. I think that's fallen off the list since the end of the Cold War. And it's become more about, you know, terrorism and economics. And I think that, in the end, the shift towards authoritarianism will lead to more more difficult, more intractable conflict, more intractable terrorism, and worse economic results for everyone. Um, and yeah. I think if you have to sell it that way, you have to sell it that way. But it, you need to take it country by country and show people why rebuild these institutions from the ground up and show people why they matter and how they can impact individuals lives on a day-to-day basis. Yeah. And uh, just as a form of wrapping up kind of last question, I guess I would have for you. Cause again, this is very much your area of expertise. Uh, it was interesting cause the, the BBC article you sent me was really helpful for someone like myself that doesn't have a ton of context uh, for this part of the world, the kind of, uh, I guess, current, um, uh, I guess, political situations in these respective nations that we're talking about. So for me, it was really helpful because it gave it within the context of the kind of like continental shifts that are taking place, which, um, and I understand why we should be really hesitant to make like platitudinal statements about Africa because this is a very big continent and there are very distinct nations within it and there are many nations within it however is there some utility in talking about uh like generalized um movements within the continent yeah i think uh, there are definitely interaction effects right if one country's democracy collapses that's not a good sign for their neighboring countries and it does have an for impact. immigration and yeah, any of I mean, just even I mean, most people in in Sub-Saharan Africa are able to get some sort of news too. They would find out about it, and it has a has a knock-on effect in terms of how people participate in their own democracy. Um, yeah. The general trend away from faith in democracy is one that is caused by a number of domestic factors, but also a number of international factors that I think allows you to kind of generalize a bit more. But if you are coming up with solutions, then I think they need to be more focused on the construction of institutions that are indigenous to and kind of endemic to specific states. And I think that's kind of something that's led to a collapse in democracy is having these systems that were kind of imposed top down that didn't have yeah. uh, the fingerprints of, of local leaders on them. Um, and maybe this is an opportunity for certain countries to rebuild these systems from the ground up with uh, more of a a local uh, flavor to them. But we'll yeah. See. I think that's a, I think that's a good place to end it. Thanks, Morgan. Thanks for joining us. Until next time, this is Rational. Adios. Adios.